Redeemer family. Anyone excited to be in church right now? Good. Good, I'm glad to hear that. Listen, this is, a exci- this is an exciting time that uh, none of us are going to forget what it was like to be in church, then not be in church, and then be back in church, right? And so um, if you're watching online, I hope you heard that excitement because if you're part of our Redeemer family, I can't wait for you to be back. I miss you. I love you. It is, it, it, the, the people here, I mean, I've been talking to people and they're going, there's just something special that we didn't know was, was that special, but now we really know how special it is to be with God's people. So again, if you're part of that 20 per, to 40% of our Redeemer family, still hesitant to come back, love you, miss you. We just want you to know that we are creating a mask-only, socially distanced venue in our gym that we hope to open next week. So very spread out, high ceilings, lots of airflow. So if you're still kind of hesitant, but you would come to that, like you would go to maybe a Costco or something like that, you can worship with us on our campus around other people in that room. Now, finally, you just heard about phase three. You heard that that's starting the week of September 12th and 13th. However, I want you to know something. If you've got kids, you're watching and you've got kids and you're going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to come back when we've got more kids stuff. I want you to know that next week we're going to have kids, we're calling it kids club, which is first one year old to third grade. We're going to have something for your kids that week. And so if you're thinking, oh, that'd be great. I don't have to, one of us come on Saturday, the other come on Sunday or, or just haven't been here. Just want you to know you're going to have that starting next week, September 5th and 6th, so you can bring your kids then. Then the following weekend, like like you heard from Costi, kids ministry will be back to what it was before we um, went fully online in March. Now here's the thing, fully reopening kids in two weeks means it would be incredibly helpful if some of you out there would sign up to be in kids ministry. You've, many of you, you've continued to serve by giving generously during the time that we, that we were fully online. And there are people here, there are businesses, there are restaurants in our valley who are grateful for you because we were able to bless them through the things that you did. Now what we need is for some of you to serve, probably 30 of you, to raise your hand and go, I want to be involved in kids ministry. And so count me in. So if you have experience in kids ministry, if you've taken a break from it, if, if you'd like to serve here, but you're not quite sure where, kids ministry would be the place to be. Now, you can do that. There's in your program. If you have your program, you open it, there's a connect card there. Fill that out, put kids ministry. As you leave after the closing song, there are boxes on either side of the lobby. They're gray and red. Just drop it in there. Someone will be in touch with you ASAP to get you involved. Now, If you're watching online and you're going, I want to do that, I'm going to be back soon, then here's what you need to do. You need to email Tiffany, our kids ministry director, that's Tiffany at RedeemerAZ.org, and they'll get you the application, they'll do the background check, they'll get you plugged in as soon as possible. Now, if uh, serving in kids ministry is a big step, you're like, yeah, kids hate me, that's someone said last night, I I can't do that. So if that's you, first of all, you just need to know that, that signing up to be involved in kids' ministry is not you're going to be teaching first graders. That's not what it is. There are a ton of different things to do in kids' ministry. So just know that. And then second, we also just know you need, we need ushers, we need greeters, we need tech team. We need pe- things all over the place here. Because as, as people are coming back, some aren't that we're doing those things. And so we, we need you. If you. Don't look around here and go, oh, they've got this all figured out. Everything's taken care of. That's not true. That's 
That's just a facade. All right. We need as many of you as possible to sign up and go, hey, I, I want to put, I want to get involved. I want to serve. How would you do that? Same way, connect card and uh, fill that out. Say, I want to serve somewhere and we'll get in touch with you as soon as possible. Now, enough of the commercials. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. That is page 179 in the blue Bibles that we give away. Deuteronomy 18. And by the way, if you get one of those Bibles, if you raise your hand and and the ushers give you one of those Bibles, do not give that back to us. We don't need it. That is, that is yours. You can keep it, write your name in it. It's our gift from you. And if you're watching right now and you're thinking, I, I, I want a Bible, I want one of those, then just email us, info at redeemeraz.org, and we'd be happy to send you one. Deuteronomy 18, drop down to verse 15. And if that's you and you're watching, I forgot to say, email us, info at redeemeraz.org. Deuteronomy 18, 15. If you are able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is God's word for us today. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That's God's word. You may be seated. As you are, join me in prayer. Father, it is good to be back together with your people once again, to hear your word, to sing to you, to pray to you. God, may we, may we never take that for granted ever again. And God, it's at this time where we want to understand your word. And, and it's hard for us because we had things going on before we got here. We have things going on after we leave here. Those things can, can dominate our thinking in moments like this. And so I pray that you would quiet all of those things and you'd give us the grace to focus, to understand, to apply the truth we're gonna hear today. And I don't just want that for us. Right now, New Hope Community Church is meeting. Right now, they're singing. Right now, they're praying. Right now, they're probably hearing from the preacher. So God, I pray that you would bless them as well that you would use them powerfully. God, in a series on revival, my prayer is that maybe you would spark revival in that church right now that would spread all over our valley and all over our nation even, that you would bless them powerfully, that people would know you and love you and serve you because of what happens at New Hope this morning. God, do that there. Please do that here. Please, I pray for the glory of your name. Amen. 
So we live in a day when some Christian vocabulary is, is kind of really equivalent to a cuss word in our culture. Say the words love and faith and hope and joy and, you know, that's not going to be a problem at all. But you can kind of feel it if you say the words like purity or holy or even God. Put the three little words in Jesus' name before you say amen after a prayer in a public gathering. And it would probably be better in some situations if you dropped an F-bomb than saying in Jesus' name, amen. This is also true when it comes to the word preach. Once considered the highest calling that could be placed on an individual to preach God's word. Today, the word preach is kind of one of those cultural cuss words. Like, hey, don't, don't preach at me. Hey, stop preaching. You know, it's a knee-jerk response to persuasive speech that we're not comfortable with. If, if we agree with it, it's a, it's a talk or a speech or a conversation. If we reject the persuasion, it's, hey, he, he preached at me. People can preach about a lot of things in our culture, though. Social change, helping the poor, the oppressed. It's celebrated, applauded, uh, posted on social media. But not if it's preaching the Bible. We live in a day when few acts are more denigrated than biblical preaching, yet at the same time, this is one of the days, and at least in the lives of the people who are here, maybe more than any other time in all of our lives, when biblical preaching is most needed. The preachers in the Old Testament were called prophets. Prophets proclaimed the word of God to the people of God, and what we just read in Deuteronomy 18 sets the criteria that, to, that separates a true prophet from a false one. In other words, it's our text is not just a prophecy of the Messiah, that he will be commissioned by God, that he will be Jewish, that his teachings are only rejected to the highest of peril. Not only is this a prophecy fulfilled in Jesus, but this passage gives the standard for a true prophet. Notice how helpful this is for distinguishing the true from the counterfeit. Lots of people out there going, I'm a prophet, I speak for God, listen to me. A lot of people have done that in the past. How do you know if they're legit or not? Look at verse 21. That's the question. How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? How do we know that that person claiming to be a prophet really is one and, and, or isn't? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has, what does your Bible say? Not spoken. Super helpful, super easy. A true prophet has to have a 100% track record of accurate predictions. Listen, or they're not a true prophet. Well, he gets it right most of the time. Doesn't matter. But he's so engaging. He's, he's mostly right. He's a fraud. It doesn't matter if he can do miracles according to Deuteronomy 13. He should be rejected. And if he was alive during, in ancient Israel, he would be executed. This was a capital crime to say, thus says the Lord when the Lord did not say. Why? Because the person is misrepresenting God. The person is lying about God. And ultimately, those lies and that misrepresentation takes people away from the one true God. This is the issue for true prophets. What is the source of their words? And notice what it says in verse 18. God says what? I will put my words in his mouth. So a person doesn't become a prophet because, you know, their dad was one or because of their personality or their education or personal connections. He became a prophet through the call and action of God. Notice verse 18. It says, God will raise up the prophet. Notice verse 18 again. I will put my words in his mouth. He will quote, look it. He will say, quote, what I command him. 
Notice too, God's not concerned about ability, originality, creativity. The words of the prophet, notice, were put or placed or set in the prophet's mouth. Now, obviously that's kind of figurative language, right? God didn't like literally fill Jeremiah's mouth with a bunch of three by five cards with words all over them, right? That's not what happened. But what is the, what is the figure pointing to? It's this. More than that, the prophet speaks by God's authority. More than that, he speaks in God's name or on God's behalf as his representative. Prophets were not simply relaying God's message in their own words. No, what this means, verse 18, what this means is what the prophet said, God said. This means prophets became God's mouth. What the prophet said, God was saying through him. They spoke the actual word of God. And when the message was written down, what was written down was the actual word of God. How actual? As if God had said it himself. Though God used the particular background and education and vocabulary and style of the individual, what was said was what God said. That's why prophets began their messages with words like, thus says the Lord. That's why they concluded their messages with, thus declares the Lord. Moses says this multiple times, Deuteronomy 1.3. The book begins with these words. Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him. So what he spoke, God had already given him to speak. His messages were given to him. Verse chapter four, verse two, Moses said, quote, you shall not add to the word that I command you. This is Moses speaking. You shall not add to the word that I command you or take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So here's Moses saying, all these things that I'm commanding you, those are actually the commands of God. Near the end of the book, Deuteronomy 30, verse one, Moses reiterates this idea again, telling the people, quote, obey God's voice in all that I command you today. Here's God's voice and it's coming through all that I'm commanding you today. Now look at Deuteronomy 18, 19. Just in case we're like, okay, well, what's the implication of that? Well, it's this. Listen to why ignoring, rejecting, mocking the words of a true prophet was and still is no laughing matter to God. Verse 19, whoever will not listen, notice, to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Those are God's words that we reject. Those are God's words that we ignore. Those are God's words that we think, no, I'm kind of above that. I, I I got my own ideas, God. No, you don't. God alone, his word alone is all that matters. To disobey the message of a true prophet was to disobey, what's the word? God. This text couldn't be any more clear on the link between God's word and the words of a true prophet. Now, you might be thinking, John, we're in a series on revival. I mean, that's what it says on the screen. Why are you talking about prophets? What's the connection between Deuteronomy 18 and revival? Revival both amongst a lot of people, like we pray, God, send revival. See thousands and thousands of people saved and, and, and reconnected to you, brought back to you, more living on fire for you. Or, or, or revival in our own hearts. When, when we know individually I become cold and I become stale, I become apathetic and, and I, I need to change that. I need you to light the fire again. What is the connection between preaching and revival? I think the connection is this. Revival breaks out through the word of God preached, through the word of God proclaimed. 
What we've been seeing in the previous messages in this series is that the word of God, the Bible, it's absolutely central to revival. There's no revival, there's no salvation, there's no growth, there's no revival without the Bible. God revives stale, cold, apathetic Christians with the Bible. It is essential. Without it, there's no revival. Any study of revivals in the Bible, which we'll do next month, any study of true revivals in history, all point to the same idea, the Bible is essential for revival. However, today we get more specific. And the more specific is this, there is no revival without the word of God preached. Biblical preaching is the spark that lights and inflames revival. If God's spirit working through the Bible is central to revival, shouldn't be surprising that the preaching of God's work is the spark that lights the flame. We saw this in Acts chapter two, a couple weeks ago. The work of the spirit led to the first Christians, 120 of them, they were revived. They were already saved, but now they're revived and, and they go out and they're preaching and miracles are happening through them. And what happened to Peter? He gets up and he does what? He starts preaching. 3,000 people are saved, that's revival. But then those people don't go back to life as usual. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer. There's this sense like my life has a new direction, a new fire, a new purpose. That's revival. We saw it in Acts 4, Acts 6, Acts 9, 11, 13, 14, that many believed. And when you look at the context, many believed as a result of the spirit working through the preaching of the word. We saw it in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul explains the revival that took place in the city of Corinth took place when he proclaimed the word in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power to save, his power to revive, his power to grow Christians all came through the preaching of the word. The power, in other words, is not in the preacher. The power is not in his presentation. The power to save, grow, and revive is in the preaching of the Spirit's message, which is the Bible, the Word of God. Now, why is this the case? In other words, how is that power experienced in the heart of a person? What, what happens in a person's soul when they're saved or when they are revived? I'm going to show you that this week and next week, that the power comes from what we saw in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. The preaching of God's Word comes to a person with the power to save, grow, and revive because it is God himself speaking through the preacher. Now I want you to see that in the life of one of Israel's greatest and most misunderstood prophets. So turn to Jeremiah chapter one. Jeremiah chapter one, page 699 in those blue Bibles we give away. Jeremiah chapter one. As you're turning there, some fun facts about Jeremiah is uh, it's not only the longest book in the Bible written by one person, it is the longest book in the Bible, period. It has the most words, more words than any other book in the Bible, 21,673. I counted all of them. Just kidding. I didn't. But people do. Now, if you, if you want kind of an outline to summarize your thoughts, we'll put uh, the opening three verses, verses one to three, we'll call Jeremiah's biography. The biography of Jeremiah. And let's jump into the text. Look at verse one. These are, quote, the words of Jeremiah. He's the human author of this book. Notice his father, Hilkiah, was a priest. So Jeremiah grows up in a, in a pastor's home. He grows up in a city called Anathoth. Be glad you don't say that publicly, you know, all the times I have. Anathoth was about three miles north of Jerusalem. Now notice something, while this book says it's the words of Jeremiah, look at verse two. 
These words of Jeremiah are the result of, notice, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, really unlike any other book in the Old Testament, clearly reveals this kind of dual source of the Bible, truly human, truly divine. In fact, listen to this. The Old Testament uses the phrase, thus says the Lord. The entire Old Testament uses that phrase 349 times. 157 of those are in Jeremiah. That's a lot, over 40%. This phrase, declares the Lord, occurs 176 times in Jeremiah. In the rest of the Old Testament, it occurs 164 times. So you cannot read this book without thinking God is speaking. In fact, if there was a red letter edition of the Old Testament, the words of God in red, this would be the most read book in the Bible. So I want you to see this just in, verse, in chapter one. So look at verse four. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Look at verse six. It says, the Lord said to me. The end of verse eight, notice, says, declares the Lord. Just like it says at the end of verse 15 and the end of verse 19. Verse nine repeats that phrase from verse six. The Lord said to me. But so does verse 12 and verse 14. Verse four, where it says there, the word of the Lord came to me. That's repeated in verse 11 and 13. And now finally, listen, look at verse 17. Listen to the, how close the connection is between God's words and Jeremiah's words. He says, God says to Jeremiah, but you dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything that I command you. Now that's just chapter one. There are 51 other chapters. And all, it, we, it would take until tomorrow to go through everyone to show you all of the times that this book says this is the word of God. And yet doing that until tomorrow would only uh, strengthen what I'm saying right now. That what Jeremiah said, God said. Jeremiah was God's mouth. He relayed God's message to God's people. Jeremiah, his words, the very words of God. Now look back at verse 2. This, is, this book is not a creation of Jeremiah. Only God spoke directly through him. Verse 2, it says there, In the days of Josiah, the king of Ammon, or the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So here's what you need to know about all of that. That, that spans 40 years that he was a prophet to the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. And his message for those 40 years was the same thing. Repent, put your idols away, come back to the Lord or sudden destruction, complete destruction will come upon you. And notice the end of verse three. Notice it says that he preached until the captivity of Jerusalem. You know what that tells us? Jeremiah is telling us at the very beginning that all of his efforts are going to be for nothing. No one listened. They didn't repent. Everything he said would happen, happened. And in that sense, he's a true prophet. They didn't return to the Lord. Destruction came upon them, which means Jeremiah preached for 40 years in the face of rejection, ridicule, threats to his life, no converts, no followers, just kept preaching for 40 years. But remember, Jeremiah's words are what? They're God's words which means it's not just Jeremiah who's preaching for 40 years. Who's preaching? God. 
40 years of God being rejected, 40 years of his word being uh, ridiculed, 40 years of people hating God through hating Jeremiah. And what does God do? He just keeps preaching year one, year two, year five, year 25, year 30, year 40. That's one message, the same message, repent, come back to me. One message since 1980, 40 years. In Jeremiah, we see the heart of God for wayward people. We see the heart of God that says, come back to me. Stop rebelling against me. You don't need to do that. You're only killing yourself. Come back to me, my wayward people, and I will revive you. God would be faithful to his rebellious people. Jeremiah would be faithful to preach to those rebellious people. But the question is, why? What is it that puts steel in his spine? What is it that caused him to, I'll face all of this for God. What what was that? Look at verse four. Here's the answer. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Verses one to three is Jeremiah's biography. Verses four to eight is Jeremiah's call to ministry. There's an obvious sense of God's presence in Jeremiah's life as well as God's purpose for Jeremiah's life in those verses. You can see it in those words, the the I, then the verb, and the you, four times, I formed you, I knew you, and so on. But but look look at verse five, and, and don't miss that word before. God had a plan for Jeremiah's life even before Jeremiah was conceived. Before I formed you, I knew you. Before you existed, Jeremiah, I had a plan for you. Before you were born, notice, I consecrated you, which means I I took you from the mass of people and I I separated you from them and I I put you into this very small category called prophet. That's verse five. I appointed you. I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet. So notice, Jeremiah didn't choose his job. He didn't go on, you know, monster.com and what do I want to do? Oh, I'm a prophet. That looks kind of good. No, the job was chosen for him. And by the way, just as an aside, verse five, notice the fetus in the womb has an identity and God is intimately involved with him. Notice, I knew you. He exists, he's alive. God knows him as a living human being that that God actually has plans for. This is why abortion is such an egregious evil, far more than other things. The murder is a precious, defenseless human turning the womb of a mother, which should be the safest place on the planet for for a baby, into the most dangerous place on the planet for a baby. Now listen, abortion is not the unpardonable sin. It's not. Far from it. But it is evil. Make no mistake. A life that we see in this text, known by God, that God has a plan for, eliminated for no reason that justifies the taking of a human life, especially a, an innocent, defenseless one. Notice, God created Jeremiah. His plan for Jeremiah was specific to be a prophet, which we've seen is a mouthpiece for God. And notice, too, had nothing to do with how good Jeremiah was. You've been such a good boy how godly he was. You've memorized my word. Like you've got the whole Bible memorized. You should be a prophet. Had nothing to do with that at all. This, this was not a reward for being committed to God at all. This was God's will for Jeremiah predetermined before Jeremiah even existed. This is the lens now that Jeremiah needs to see his entire life through from this moment on. This calling defined him. It would dominate his life from then on. He'd received divine communication he was to convey that communication 
to God's people in its entirety without even leaving out a word. Now, in many contexts today, someone gets the call to preach and it's welcomed, it's celebrated, it's applauded, it's, it's admired. Notice Jeremiah verse six, not so much. Then he said, ah, Lord God, that's not the awe of refreshment <sighs> sitting in my pool. You know, like that's not that kind of awe. That word awe expresses a substantial amount of emotion as well as shock. Jeremiah is overwhelmed. He's discouraged. He's going, this is no small task. But what I want you to see is he's not refusing. Notice, what does he call God? He says, ah, what? Ah, Lord God. You're the one in charge. You're the sovereign. You're the king. You're the Lord. But what you see in the rest of verse 6 is that he just doesn't see himself as able to do what God's planned for him to do. Behold, I do not know how to speak. Notice that. He understands the call to be a prophet is the call to speak. I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth. That word youth, most scholars think that he's somewhere around 12 to 17 years old when he says this. So he's, he's young. So he's going, God, so this is modesty. This is humility. This is not like, I'm um, no God, no Lord. It's, he's, I'm inadequate. I'm not old enough. I don't, I don't think I have the skills which, which, by the way, that's, that's like a, a good thing, right? When God says, here's what I want you to do with your life, and your initial thought is, I'm not adequate for that. I, I don't know how to be a mom. I, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know how to do that stuff. God, help me. That, that's a really good place to be. When we think we're adequate enough to do God's will, we're not. And notice, he knows the call to be a prophet is a call to speak, like I said, to preach. And he, he said, I, I don't have what it takes I'm not able, I'm not eloquent, I'm just a kid. And you can just imagine God sitting there going, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. And then God completely overrules Jeremiah, verse seven. But, that's how you know it's overruled. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. His age is not an issue. In fact, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we looked at a couple weeks ago. We saw there that God loves to take unlikely people. I called, I called it pitiful preachers. Pitiful people. People that aren't anything. People that aren't great, that aren't smart, that, that don't have all of these uber giftings. He loves to take those people and do extraordinary things through them. Why? So that he gets the glory, not them. Well, notice God's not contradicting Jeremiah. He's not going like, no, no, buddy, you, can, you, you speak just fine. Oh, no, no, you're, you're old enough. You know, it's good. God just says all of that's irrelevant. Why? Because when God calls, he equips. When he guides, he provides what's needed to do what he wants done. He gives his people what they need to do his will for their lives. Listen, whether that's parenting, whether that's work, whether that's school, whether that's the call to ministry. All Jeremiah has to be, again, is faithful Faithful to the task God has given him. That means he'll have to work hard. That means he's going to have to prepare. But all of that is so he can be faithful in the task, in the things that God's called him to do. Now, verse 8, not the kind of thing I want to hear from the Lord. You get a second clue that this is not going to be easy for Jeremiah. The first clue is in verse 3. Uh, those words, captivity of Jerusalem, things aren't going to go well. But verse 8, do not be afraid of them. Mm, yeah, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. There's that phrase, declares the Lord. There's no need to say that unless what? Unless Jeremiah's going to be terrified. 
And notice in verse 8, the them of verse 8 is the all of verse 7. So all of the people that I'm going to send you to, all of them you don't need to be afraid of. Why? What does the text say? Because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. You don't need to be afraid. Though they're going to refuse to repent, though they're going to hate you for telling them to repent, do not be afraid of them because I'm there to deliver you, to rescue you. God will be at his side, protecting him, watching over him, defending him. Doesn't mean he's not going to struggle. He's going to be despised, rebuked, and mocked. You read the rest of Jeremiah. There are times when he's crying out to God, God, why did you do this to me? Why am I doing this? I can't, I I don't understand it. I want to run away from this. There are other times when the entire city of Jerusalem, all the people, all the officials, all the prophets, and the king himself all want him dead. His life is threatened many times. He survives and they all die because God was protecting him, meaning that nothing could happen to Jeremiah that was not filtered through the sovereign, good, loving mind and hand of God. And after this assurance that Jeremiah's weakness doesn't matter, After God says he will give him what to say, after he says, hey, all those people, you're going to say it to, you don't need to be afraid of them. Then we get to Jeremiah, the channel. This is when God makes Jeremiah a channel through which he will speak to his people. Verse nine. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, we'll come back to that in a second. Sounds familiar though, right? Sounds like a direct quote from Deuteronomy 18, 18. Jeremiah in this moment seems to be describing a theophany, which is when God himself shows up in bodily form like he did many other times in the Old Testament. And he reaches out his hand and he touches Jeremiah's mouth. Think about that. There is now in that moment a connection between God himself and Jeremiah's mouth, which means the the mouth belonged to Jeremiah, but the actual words belong to God. In other words, this this activates his divine call. This is what makes him a prophet. He he will now speak from God. God would speak through him. Jeremiah doesn't have to worry about what to say at all. He would just be God's mouthpiece, the channel through which God's voice, God's word, God's message would come to people. So when people heard Jeremiah speak, what they were hearing was God. And for 40 years, it is this truth that the Jews rejected. He doesn't speak for God. That's not true. I'm going to listen to the other people who disagree with him because that just can't be right. And God right here goes, no, that is true. Those are my words. The people who heard Jeremiah preach didn't believe that. But everyone who read this book after Jerusalem was destroyed, after the people were driven out of the lands, after everything Jeremiah said came true, they all knew God spoke here. There'd be no difference between Jeremiah's words and God's words. This is, this is Jeremiah's calling as a channel of God's word summed up in one verse. And then look at verse 10. This is going to be the result of his calling as a channel of God's word summed up in one verse. See, I have set you this day. Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. All of the plans of all of the kingdoms and the nations will actually come to nothing because my word through you will stand. Now you might be thinking, John, why are you talking about Jeremiah and a message about revival and preaching? You said he had no converts. I don't know much about revival, but I know that's not revival. 
right? <laughs> Nobody listened to him. Yes, he's faithful, and in that is success, but that's not even close to revival. Ah, but listen to J- Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, quote, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. We all know Jeremiah 29, 11, but Jeremiah 29, 10 says that the Jews will be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel's reading that in Jeremiah and going, wait a minute, it's coming up. Like this is year 69, like we're going home. And so the next verse says this, verse three. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. In other words, the preaching of Jeremiah led to revival in the prophet Daniel. And listen to Ezra chapter one, verses one and two, a bunch of names that you're really happy you're not saying publicly. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, do you hear that? The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. And the proclamation was, if you are Jewish, you can go home. Here's a bunch of money. You can go home, rebuild your cities, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild your temple. You know what happens? We're going to see it in a couple weeks. Revival breaks out. So God used the preaching of Jeremiah and later generations to revive his people. This is the typical way God revives his people, through the preaching of his word. It is the mark of true revival, whether it's Ezra and Peter, Paul, Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, or or dozens of nameless preachers that God has used to bring revival to a people. And it's always done through preaching. You can tell a church or you can tell that the church in general is in decline when there is a de-emphasis on preaching the Bible. Doing so is rarely condemned. No, we're Bible people. It just gets overshadowed by psychology or social action or politics or philosophy or storytelling or a whole bunch of other antics to draw a crowd and elicit excitement and stir emotion. The hope, here's the thing, the the hope for results is subtly transferred to those things rather than trusting in the only source for revival, the only source where people are saved and grow and Christians who are cold get revived which is God's spirit working through the preaching of his word. We should long for and pray for God to reassert the primacy, the supremacy, the centrality of preaching, not because I'm a preacher. I don't think that's a problem here. But because when preaching is at the center, when it is the engine, you know what it's pulling along with it? Revival. Revival's coming with preaching. So if you've... If you find yourself parched and dry, if you find yourself, you're drifting, you've been drifting for years. If your heart has become hard, if you've grown cold about the things of God, listen, reassert preaching into your life. Reassert it as as a central part of your life, in your weekly routines, your daily routines, how you spend your free time. Put preaching the Bible back into your life and you will see revival come back to your soul. Now, towards the beginning, I asked a series of questions. Why does God use biblical preaching to revive his stale, cold, stagnant, apathetic people? In other words, how does God revive his people through the preaching of his word? I asked the question this way. How is the power experienced in a person 
to save, grow, or revive them? What happens in their soul when they're saved or when they're revived? Here is the answer. God himself speaks through the preacher when the preacher is preaching God's word. When the preacher is saying in his preaching what God has already said, God speaks. This, when that happens, the people aren't just hearing the preacher. When that happens, people are hearing God through the preacher. This is the, it's like you were just speaking to me. That's, what, that's exactly what I needed to hear. How did you know I was struggling with that issue today, pastor? How did you know that I needed to hear that? Why did you preach that message about me? I know one preacher who is done with preaching for the morning, goes home, he's relaxing, and then he hears a knock on his door. And he goes to the front door and there is an irate man standing in front of him. Give it back to me. <laughs> what are you talking about? Give it back to me. Stop. I, I know you have it. Give it back to me right now. And the preacher, like after minutes, is, is says, like, I don't understand. What are you talking about? Give me back my journal. There's no way in the world you could know all of those things about me unless you had my journal. Give it back to me right now. And the preacher said to all of us, he's like, um, I didn't have his journal. But he said, then I, I sat down with him and I helped him understand that, that what he experienced was the voice of God speaking directly to him through the preaching of the word. The, pre the problem with the people in Jeremiah's day is they didn't hear Jeremiah's words as God's word. They heard his words as merely the words of a man that they can take or leave and it's no big deal. However, his words were God's words. And because they were God's words, they rejected God. They ignored God. They scorned God. They disregarded God when they disregarded his word. My goal today has been to kind of lay out this paradigm for biblical preaching that God himself speaks when his word is preached so that when we go to the revivals that we're going to look at next month, you're going to have this paradigm firmly set in your mind. Now, there's one last thing. I'm purposely not digging into the implications of this idea yet. So like, so John, how should this impact how we listen to preaching? I'm not doing that because you should be asking this question right now, and I'm going to help you with that. You should be asking this question, what about today, uh, John, when we don't have prophets like Jeremiah running around? I mean, maybe God spoke, spoke through them. Maybe he spoke through apostles, but is that true for preachers today? Can we expect God to speak through preaching today? Is it right for us to say the preaching of the word of God is the word of God because God speaks through it? Sure, John, you can give me some anecdotes and yeah, that's really funny and all that, but is this the biblical view of preaching? Is this what the New Testament teaches about preaching in the church age that God actually condescends and speaks through a sinful man his perfect word? Is, is, can, I, can I think that, that that actually would happen today? Those are all great questions, which we'll look at next week. Truly, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, I know in a room full of people, we're all in a different place with you. Some here don't need revival because they're walking strong with you every day, steady plodding. Others maybe have grown cold. Or it's not cold, it's just warm and not on fire. There are others here today who maybe this is a totally new concept. 
that this is your word. And that rejecting your word is not just, uh, well, I'm just choosing a different ice cream flavor of religion for another one. But that you actually took your mind and put it in this book alone. And that to reject the message of this book is to reject you. And the overall message of this book is that you created us. You own us. You've said, here is the best possible life to live and we have spurned you. We have ignored you. We have, we have rejected you. And you're holy. And you're just. You will punish sin because you're just and good. But yet you are also loving. You love sinners. And for all who would turn from their rebellion and would put their trust in Christ, would, re, would commit their lives to him, that they would walk in the freedom of sins forgiven. They would enjoy your presence in their lives. They would experience the adoption as a, as a child of yours, both now and forever. We're all in a different place, but we all need to understand this is your word. Help us to understand how you want us to apply that word to each of our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.